a topic nobody wants to talk about, yet there are 200 million people worldwide who suffer from urinary incontinence, and 75 to 80% of them are women. Kim Vopney is a certified personal trainer who specializes in pelvic floor therapy. She helps women regain their soft power. She is the vagina coach, the founder of Pelvian Wellness Incorporated and Kegels and Cocktails. Kim strives to normalize discussions about vaginas, kegels, and menopause. Her journey to help other women came as a result of her first pregnancy, where she had numerous questions. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. You mentioned before you gave when you gave birth to your first child that you were nervous about what was about to happen in the process, but fascinated at the same time. Can you tell us more about how that nurse helped you? And do all nurses help this way, or were you just lucky? Well, I think I think there's all always going to be an element of fear when it comes to childbirth and it's an unknown and there's a lot of horror stories that are shared. So there is a definite element of uncertainty and fear. And I certainly felt that part of which was due to the stories that my mom told me about her birth. So being curious when I was younger, I did ask her about her birth experiences and she did have episiotomies, which are thankfully not quite as common anymore, but that's where they actually cut a portion of the pelvic floor during vaginal childbirth with the intention of creating more space, but it was actually creating more injuries. So she experienced that two times. She ended up having bladder incontinence for which she had surgery for, she had chronic back pain. And so the picture of pregnancy and birth was not necessarily painted in a beautiful, lovely, everything's going to be unicorn and roses type way. And so when I was wanting to start a family, I really wanted to do something different. So I went into pregnancy quite excited, I guess, but as it, the due date looms, you start to become a little bit more fearful. So I was starting to do some investigation and my midwives had told me about a biofeedback device called the Epino. And it was that product that I would say was kind of the catalyst to get me into the world of pelvic health. So after I used it, I did have a positive experience. I was supported by my um, midwives in the hospital, also a, a nurse who was attending I knew a little bit with regards to birth positioning, but I didn't know everything that I know now. However, I did have a positive experience. I didn't have any tearing, tearing in the, which is what a lot of people are afraid of. So I credited a lot to this product that I had used as well. And I ended up becoming a distributor and that sort of launched me into the world of pelvic health and wanting to help others know this information and knowing what I know now, everything that I've learned over the last, you know, 17 years there's a lot, I actually still wish that I had known for my, my home birth that could have played a role maybe not so much in the birth itself, but more in the postpartum recovery, that is such an overlooked part of it as well. And so my mission now really is what I recognized in that process was pelvic health is a conversation that we are, we're never told about until we have a problem. And then often the first line of defense is to the doctor, which we need a medical providers on our care team, but I don't believe it's our best first line of defense. So I really wanted to introduce the concept of what the pelvic floor is at a time when we have an opportunity to intervene from a prevention perspective and also optimize postpartum recoveries. Can you tell us 
what or describe the pelvic floor in laywomen's terms. Mm -hmm. And what is a Kegel for those who might not know? The pelvic floor is a group of muscles. We have muscles all in our body. The pelvic floor has a group of muscles and they have slow twitch fibers, which are the ones that are, you could think of marathon runners. So they're the ones that kind of are a little bit on all day long, helping support and stabilize us, control our movement. And then we have fast twitch fibers, which are the ones that need to react really quickly. You can think of sprinters and they're sort of, if you think of a laugh, a cough, a sneeze, those are the ones that are going to turn on really quickly to help prevent any urine from leaking out. And the pelvic floor is layers of muscles. It's not just one muscle. And there's three layers. The first layer is primarily responsible for our sexual response. The second layer is primarily responsible for our continent. So closing the, or managing the openings that we have, the urethra, the vagina, and the anus. And then the third layer is primarily responsible for supporting our internal organs, the main three being bladder, uterus, and rectum. So that's, that's kind of a general description of what they are. Their functions are sexual response, organ support, continence, core and pelvic, uh, sorry, core and spinal stability, pelvic stability and control. And also they, the pelvic floor works in synergy with our diaphragm, our breathing diaphragm and acts sort of like a sump pump to help with blood flow circulation and, and what have you. So these are really important jobs and we've never been told about them. And maybe when if we have gone through pregnancy, so around 80% of women will be pregnant at some point in their life. And so that's a time when then somebody will usually say, oh, make sure you do your Kegel exercises. And most people have heard of the term Kegel or Kegel, Kegel, but again, nobody's ever really taught us how to do it, what it actually is. Maybe we've been provided with a brochure, go home and watch this. Or sometimes people will think that you're supposed to stop and start the flow of urine. So a Kegel exercise is a voluntary contraction and relaxation. So activation and relaxation of that group of muscles. And there needs to be an element of a, of a bit of a lift as well. So if we think about those openings, we need the pelvic floor to be able to close. So have a bit of an element of shortening and contracting, but also lifting to support those organs and then relaxing. So that's what a Kegel exercise actually is. And it was designed by Dr. Kegel and he saw women post childbirth having more challenges contracting and relaxing their pelvic floor and also dealing with things like incontinence. So he wanted to give them something that would strengthen that group of muscles. And that's how the Kegel exercise came about. But what's happened over time is people interpret a Kegel as just a squeeze. And a lot of time people are squeezing their inner thighs or they're squeezing their glute muscles thinking they're doing a Kegel when in fact they're not. So then a lot of people end up saying, oh, well, Kegels didn't work for me, but we have even evidence to support in the research that over 50% of people are doing Kegels incorrectly, not their fault. Nobody's ever taught them. So some cues that I like that help people visualize the movement of that group of muscles. There's a, there's three that I'll give that are to my top three that most people resonate with. The first one is imagine picking up a blueberry with your vagina and your anus as you exhale. So as we take a breath in our pelvic floor lengthens, or it should be lengthening and expanding. And then on the exhalation is when the contraction or activation happens. So if we add on the imagery of thinking about picking up a blueberry that can heighten that awareness, that's one. The second one is Imagine sipping a smoothie through a straw with your vagina on the exhalation. 
And then the next one, the third one is to visualize a jellyfish. So if we think of a jellyfish softly floating in the ocean, when it wants to move, the edges sort of draw together and it propels up to the surface of the ocean. So when people use those images, and there's no best image, it's which, which one is best for you, which one elicits the response we're looking for, that that can help them contract and relax their pelvic floor. And then the final thing I'll say is the best way to actually check well, two ways you can check with your own fingers, or if you have a partner, they can check with their fingers, or if it's a male partner, they could use their penis. But the best, in my opinion, the gold standard is to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. And when somebody is pregnant, I mean, this is one of the wonders of women. <clears throat> we have this ability to bear children. So let's start with the mechanics of pregnancy and childbirth. How does this change a, a female body? So there's a couple of things there. Male and female anatomy, we, we both have a pelvis, we both have a pelvic floor. In the female anatomy, the pelvis is a little bit wider to accommodate childbirth. We also have a, vag a vagina, we have a vaginal opening. We also have a uterus. And so we, and because we can grow and birth babies, we are at additional risk for pelvic floor challenges. And so when we, when, when a woman becomes pregnant, there is an ever increasing load that that pelvic floor group, that, that group of muscles needs to manage as the baby's growing. So there's more weight on the pelvic floor. And then there's also a shifting center of gravity. So as the belly is growing out in front, there's also kind of unconscious adaptations that the person is going through to accommodate this shift, you know, larger breasts, this belly growing out in front of them. And that can sometimes lead to gripping or tension that's held in that group of muscles. And when we don't have muscles that are contracting and relaxing in their full range of motion, so if they're kind of stuck in that always on mode, they then are not as able to do the jobs like managing a laugh, a cough, a sneeze, relaxing to accommodate childbirth. And so incontinence is very common. It's common to develop in pregnancy itself. And there's statistics to show if you have incontinence while you are pregnant, the likelihood of you having it, you know, five years and beyond is very high. So we sometimes are told that, well, well, you know, there's less room, there's more pressure on the bladder. It's very common. Yeah. You're probably, it's normal. And so it's never really addressed, but if you are leaking at any point in your life, but definitely during pregnancy, it's something it's your body sending you a signal that it needs a little bit of help. Something needs to change to give it back its capacity to manage all of the jobs that it has and to ensure that incontinence is not something that happens um, later on in life. So that's kind of structurally and adaptations that might be happening from a posture perspective that it could influence the pelvic floor. And then there's also the hormone considerations as well. So we have, we have lots of changes that are happening to try to allow that pelvis to be as expandable as possible almost so that we can facilitate the process of a, a vaginal childbirth. And of course you can give birth via cesarean as well. But those are the, that's the reason why it's happening. And that can create some, again, additional demand on the pelvis. So now the muscles are needing to adjust to that kind of altered state of the, the pelvis and the hormones and 
the ligament laxity and what have you. So everything's all just kind of readjusting the whole time, excuse me. And when we have that awareness and we can intervene with the appropriate pelvic floor exercise, not just Kegels, there's less pelvic girdle pain, less low back pain, less incontinence, oftentimes more favorable birth outcomes and people are set up for a better recovery as well. So what I'm hearing you say is that in prenatal classes, are they not teaching this or are they just focusing on the actual act of childbirth and the breathing and all of that? I will say that there has been in the last say five to eight years, there has been a little bit more incorporation of core and pelvic floor health into some prenatal education classes. However, for the most part, most prenatal classes focus on what, what is labor? What does it feel like? How do you manage first stage, second stage? What happens to your placenta? So it's, it doesn't really go in depth into the pelvic floor. And that's sort of where, when I first started my business, where I kind of came in to fill that void. So I created a course that would complement prenatal education, but it was really targeted to pelvic floor, the abdominal wall prevention. So how can we birth with the pelvic floor in mind? How can we train the pelvic floor to respond more appropriately? And then what can we be doing in the postpartum recovery to ensure optimal return to form and function? So how does the body get back? How, how does the vagina go back to its normal form or does it? Yeah. So that in, in the vagina, we have the vagina itself, we have these folds that are called rugae that, and so that the vagina has an incredible capacity to expand and contract, to accommodate things coming in. If, if you're talking about say insert of sex or menstrual products or toys, but also things to come out with when we think about childbirth, obviously there's a great, a greater stretch that happens during childbirth. However, the, with an appropriate environment with an appropriate education with a pelvic floor that is able to yield and surrender to that. We can often do it without tearing and without a lot of residual um, issues, so to speak. The, The challenge lies in many people are not given education prior to pregnancy, prior to birth. So even if they are pregnant, especially about, so about birth, but also about postpartum recovery. And we in North America, it's glorified almost to be back at the gym, taking selfies for social media within a couple of weeks. And so after we've been showing off, you know, taking a selfie every month to show how big our belly is and compare it to fruits and vegetables and and what have you, once we are now a mom, the babe is outside the body. We all of a sudden have this belly. That's a place of shame and we have to hide it and we have to not look pregnant as fast as possible. So there's a disconnect there and that we're not honoring that postpartum recovery in many cultures around the world. There's, there's a huge emphasis placed on the first 40 days, especially And it's my belief in terms of, to answer your question, when we can intervene with pelvic floor initiated movement, restorative exercise in those first few weeks, coupled with things like proper nourishment, lots of rest, hydration, we, we, what I have seen in my own clients is much better outcomes, much better. Like, I don't, I don't mean to say quicker recovery in the sense of, I want them to get back so fast, but just they aren't dealing with lagging or kind of lingering issues for longer periods of time. 
And I'm also incorporating a visit to a pelvic floor physical therapist around six to eight weeks postpartum, which I think should be standard of care for every single woman, every single woman in general, but definitely people who are pregnant and giving birth. And so in terms of it, does it ever go back? The landscape has always, when you've become pregnant, when you've given birth, the landscape will be altered to some extent, but that doesn't mean that you have to expect you're going to be incontinent, that you will have organs shift out of position, that you will no longer uh, experience pleasure during sex. That's absolutely not true. And in many cases, some people, because they've now learned this, sometimes for the first time, they often return to daily life and sport and physical activity stronger than they were before because they know how to harness the power of their pelvic floor. Wow. And you have mentioned prolapse and where the vaginal and anal organs can shift out of alignment. Mm -hmm. We heard it feels like a tampon is stuck there but the sensation comes and goes, is this something that requires surgery to fix? And how common is it? Mm -hmm. So organ prolapse is where the bladder, the uterus, the rectum, those are the three most common organs shift out of their proper anatomical position and they can bulge into or descend into the vagina. So in the case of a bladder prolapse, it's also called a cystocele. It can bulge into the anterior or the front wall of the vagina. In a uterine prolapse, the uterine uterus can descend into the top of the vagina downwards. And in the case of the rectum, the rectum can bulge into the back wall, the posterior wall of the vagina. And you can have one, you could have two, you could have all of them to varying degrees. Symptoms do not indicate severity. So there are some people who could have a bulge right at the entrance to their vagina and have no idea. And there are other people who could have a very tiny little shift and they are incredibly symptomatic. So symptoms are all over the map and they do not equate or, or, um, align with severity. Hmm. Common symptoms would be, so you've mentioned, yes, sometimes people feel like they, you know, it's like a vagina or like a tampon's not in there correctly, or it's stuck, or it's maybe slipping out of position. Their low back pain is a very common symptom. They may experience things like constipation, difficulty starting the flow of urine, incomplete emptying, uh, difficult kind of discomfort with insertive sex, a feeling of heaviness or dragging that gets worse as the day progresses. And in more advanced cases, if you see or feel a bulge right at the entrance to your vagina, that's another indication as well. So those are kind of the, the, some of the symptoms, but not everybody will have all of those or any of them. And over 50% of women in the perimenopause, menopause range and beyond have some degree of prolapse. It's incredibly common. And when we look at, there was one study looking at postpartum and at, at six weeks postpartum, 83% of people had some degree of prolapse. So that's an indication that there is a lot more that happened right after childbirth, but there is some sort of resolution and healing that happens. But from an ongoing perspective, about 50% of women will have some degree of prolapse. Some know, some don't. And again, part of the reason why I support seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist at least once a year is because we can screen for that. Just like we go to the dentist to screen for cavities, I believe we should be screening for pelvic floor conditions with pelvic floor physical therapy. And the last part of your question with regards to surgery, many people, if they experience this all of a sudden, like all of a sudden they have these symptoms or they see or feel a bulge, they will go to their doctor. And again, 
I don't want to discount the medical community as, as a role that we have in, in managing our health and our pelvic health. However, I would go first to a pelvic floor physical therapist because they can intervene with postural recommendations, breath recommendations, exercise recommendations. And that's some of what I do as well. There's one specific exercise technique that I teach called the hypopressive method, which is what allowed me or what helped me reverse my stage two uterine prolapse. So there are lots of things we can do without surgery. There's exercise, there's pessaries, there's diet, lifestyle, all sorts of things that we, we can be doing. If after all of those have been tried and there still are symptoms that are interfering with the quality of that person's life, then surgery may be an option and it could be a great option for some. I just want to counsel people not to jump right to surgery without trying to get to the root cause. Constipation is often a root cause of prolapse. Mm -hmm. And if that is not addressed and they go to surgery, the likelihood of recurrence is very, very high. And people are simply not told that information. Wow. And you've also mentioned that surgery only fixes the physical issue, but what, but obviously it's not going to fix all of the issues because you still need to do the exercises, don't you? Yeah. And I, I would argue that you need them even more after surgery. And a lot of people are told the opposite. They think that because now I've had surgery, I don't need pelvic floor anymore. I don't need to do exercises anymore because it's fixed. And Surgery can be life-changing and it can help restore anatomy to some extent, very closely for some people. It can depend on the severity of what the person has been dealing with. However, again, there are root causes. I mentioned constipation, thyroid conditions, hormone imbalance. A lot of people will go have a hysterectomy because of heavy bleeding, but if there hasn't been any investigation to explore why that person is heavy bleeding, then some of those could still linger after and the problem hasn't necessarily been solved. And now they have an organ removed, which has placed them at increased risk of other types of organ prolapse, which again, not everybody is told or counseled about. So the, the, the part of surgery for me going through it myself. So I lived with another type of prolapse called a rectocele. So my rectum bulged into the back wall of my vagina. And I lived with that for nine years and did everything I possibly could. And And I was very reluctant to go to surgery because I thought, okay, here I am a person trying to help prevent everybody going from surgery. I'm giving them all these exercises and now I'm going to go and do surgery. How does it, it felt like a bit of a hypocrite, but at the same time, I also recognize that surgery is an option and it it should be something that we have no shame around pursuing, but I want people to be informed. So me, I have the fortune of being informed because it's the world that I work in. I know the questions to ask. I I know how to find a good surgeon. I know how to prepare my body for surgery. I know how to recover afterwards, but, but that nobody is told that information. They're simply told you need a hysterectomy or you need a this. And they sort of go in often quite blindly and afterwards are not given instruction other than don't lift anything heavy. That's not helpful information. (laughs) And then usually around six weeks, they get a checkup kind of like postpartum and they're told they're ready to go back to, to, to normal activity, which I totally disagree with. I don't believe postpartum or post-op that we are ready for regular return to like return to regular activity at, at six weeks after it's more like six to 12 months after. Mm. Cause I mean, 
when you think about it, that's, that's a huge thing coming out of your body. And, you know, imagine. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the mental the it reaches in your body. Yeah, yeah. With incontinence. No, like, if you ask somebody with incontinence, they're, if they could choose not to have it or have it, they would choose not to have it. However, it's, they put a pad in, they carry on. They're not necessarily as affected as I have seen people with prolapse. The mental health side of prolapse is, is, is extreme. I've I've experienced it myself. I've, I hear about it every day from people who are afraid to move, afraid to socialize, afraid to have sex or tell their partners. They feel ashamed. They feel like they've done something wrong. They feel like they're broken. These are all words that I, I hear from them. And so that, again, if we could intervene with pelvic health education and screening ahead of time to have an element of prevention it, it really could truly transform mental health and physical health. Because when we think also of, as we're aging, getting into perimenopause and menopause, we now have increased risk of, you know, our bone mass, our muscle mass is decreasing, our brain health, our heart health, all the reasons why we need to be exercising. And if we are dealing with a pelvic floor dysfunction and not exercising, we've now even increased those risks even more. And I imagine this sounds like it can greatly impact your sexual health as well. Yeah, a thousand percent. So again, a lot of people are feeling ashamed or embarrassed. They don't want their partner to see anything or feel anything. They, the, the person, the woman with prolapse may be experiencing discomfort with sex, experiencing pleasure, then you're not necessarily going to want to participate either perimenopause and menopause adds the additional layer of vaginal dryness. So we have changes because we no longer have as much circulating estrogen, the walls of the vagina become thinner and drier and start to sort of narrow, which can also contribute to painful intercourse. And so when you add that on top of an already existing pelvic floor challenge there, again, mental health can really start to suffer. And I I truly believe, I often say that pelvic floor exercise and pelvic floor therapy can save relationships and save marriages. There's a lot of breakdown in relationships because there's a person withdrawing who's ashamed and embarrassed and maybe not even talking about it with their partner and avoiding sex. And then, you know, again, the, the, the divide just kind of gets a little bit bigger. So sex is really good for the pelvic floor. It, it, however, if we're not and it doesn't have to be with a partner. So solo sex, it doesn't even have to be insert of sex. Although I do believe that we, as women, we benefit from having something inside going in and out every once in a while. And that doesn't again, have to be a penis or a finger. It could be a, a device of some sort to help prevent atrophy and to help keep those muscles working. Cause mm-hmm. part of sex is, is encouraging those muscles to work and experience blood flow and circulation. And you've with all of these incontinence and prolapse issues, are they exclusive to childbearing women or anybody like there's a lot of uh, LGBTQ people who might not have kids and I'm meeting a lot of women that are having kids. Yeah. No, it can happen to anybody. Uh, it can happen to young fit especially high, higher level athletes. So trampolinists, gymnasts, tennis players, they will often be at increased risk. Dancers, 
even yoga, yoga and Pilates, which we think of yoga as being very relaxation, but there's often a lot of activation into the pelvic floor that happens. So sometimes um, there can be an overactivity in, in the pelvic floor with regards to Pilates and, and yoga, sometimes horseback riders, but no, absolutely not. You do not have to have ever been pregnant at any point in your life to experience pelvic floor challenges like pain, like incontinence, like organ prolapse. So in the case of somebody born with fetal anatomy who has a vagina, there are things that can descend into there's the vaginal health that we need to consider people with male anatomy. They don't have a vagina for things to bulge into. They don't have a uterus. They don't grow and, and birth children. So their risk is decreased. However, prostate Mm -hmm. um, issues are what can increase pelvic floor challenges in men. They can experience rectal prolapse where the rectum can actually come out of the anus that can happen in both female and male anatomy. So pelvic pain even could happen to, to anybody. So the, the belief that, oh, I didn't, I've never given birth. I'm fine. You may not have any symptoms, but I still would suggest that that person would benefit from seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist once a year as a check-in. And obviously from what I'm hearing too, it's really important to know all about your pelvic floor just in general, because we, yeah. we, we learn about so many other things. We go to school, we, we learn how to do stuff for our careers and whatnot, but we don't learn enough about our own bodies, do we? <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And there are many, I, I work with people all the time who are in, you know, their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, some have given birth, some haven't. And they, uh, they think, how have I lived for X number of years? And I'm just learning this now in the UK, the NHS has proposed that pelvic health be taught in schools. And I have been saying that for years. I wholeheartedly agree with that. When we are learning about our, about bodies, about sexual health, about reproductive health, about menstruation, that would be an opportune time to introduce pelvic floor, both male and female. However, females have these additional things to consider menstrual cycle with hormone fluctuations. Again, the majority of people will become pregnant at some point in their life. Perimenopause and menopause, again, another hormonal fluctuation. All of those mean that we have additional reasons to pay extra attention. And here's how there's these very simple exercises to do. And there's this care provider called a pelvic floor physical therapist, just like the dentist. We're going to go see once a year. If we planted that seed early and also presented mm -hmm. in a way that is, is not doom and gloom. I think so often yeah. we're like, when you get older, you're going to have, you know, you're going to menstruate and it's going to, you're going to have cramps and you're in the, and then, which and then is what we're hearing now. Yes. And then you're going to go to menopause and you're going to have hot flashes and everything is just like, ah, oh, like it, it sort of deflates you. But if we present, if it's presented in a way that this is such a powerful part of the body and you are an amazing, you have these amazing gifts and amazing capacities then I think we, it, again, present it in a different light, but also introduce that information younger. I think it really, truly could transform people's lives. The traditional health industry is more medicine-based to fix things after the fact rather than preventative. So how much grief could be saved if these issues were known at childbirth and even pregnancy? Yeah, and you know, I right now, there's many professionals in the world that can have elements of 
input with regards to pelvic health. And we have for many years always kind of gone to the, the medical community as our first line of defense. I would love to see that reverse where we have pelvic health professionals. So like we go to the dentist, as I've been mentioning all the time, see them first. And if it's a medical issue, then they can pass on to the doctor who could then, if it's an infection or if it's something like there is a medical condition called overactive bladder, there's a lot of people that self-diagnose themselves as having overactive bladder if they go to the bathroom all the time, but so often it's behavioral, but true overactive bladder can be managed with pharmaceuticals. Then I think that again, that it, there would be such a transformative change because the power would be put onto the person. Mm. When we go to the doctor and we're prescribed medication, sometimes the medication is prescribed without a full exploration as to again, what is the root cause of this leaking of this incontinence or this urgency that this person is dealing with. So if we kind of turn the tables around and also understand that I always promote having a healthcare team, a healthcare village, rather than just having a doctor, there's Chinese medicine, there's naturopathic physicians, functional medicine, personal trainers, physiotherapists, chiropractors, not saying we need all of them, but exploring some other options that could help with your situation. And, and one stat I'll share there is 95% of women with low back pain have some form of pelvic floor dysfunction. And when you think of back pain, some people will go to their doctor. Some people will go to a chiropractor. Some people will go to a massage therapist, acupuncture, what have you, which can all be helpful. I don't want to discount that. Oftentimes the missing link is the pelvic floor. And so if there was somebody guiding us to let's take a look at the pelvis and the pelvic floor, asking about things like constipation, asking about things like pain with sex, asking about things like menstrual cycle irregularities, or what have you. I, I just I feel like so much is left out of conversations. Now in the medical provider's defense, at least here in North, North America, we have seven to 10 minutes. That's not a lot of time to, you know, and their, their job is to kind of rule out the more sinister challenges and then potentially refer on. So again, another reason why pelvic floor or other providers who we often may have to pay out of pocket for, or we may have some benefits to support, but we have usually an hour with them. So it's a lot more opportunity to explore some of these questions. The other thing about um, seeing doctors and, and particularly for me, myself personally, I don't want to see a, a male doctor and it, it isn't because I'm prejudiced against men. It's because they can't tell me what it feels like to have a period. <laughs> okay. mm -hmm. So I prefer a female doctor, but a lot of times, you know, when you see doctors, it could be a female doctor too, where they, they kind of placate you, especially when you get older, they placate you. Oh, that's just normal. Don't worry about it. You know, let me know when it gets worse and then we'll do something about it. The mental health of that has to, I, I know it has to, you know, there's something wrong, mm -hmm. but they're not, they're, they're just, I'll take two aspirins and call me. In a week. Yeah. And part of that is also, again, in the, in the defense of, of doctors, it's their training. So they're trained in allopathic medicine and to find a symptom and to have, have a treatment for that. And sometimes like perimenopause has all sorts of symptoms or sensations that somebody will be dealing with that could indicate 
heart or bladder or, you know, it, it could, but, but if they, they just don't, don't receive training with regards to perimenopause and menopause. So it's easier for them to say, oh, that's just normal. And call me if it gets really, you know, that much more severe. And again, if, if that person knows of other options, they can go and pursue those, but not everybody does. And so they're unfortunately kind of left thinking, well, I guess I just need to live with this. And I think that the pandemic was an interesting time as well, because it all of a sudden opened up opportunities to receive healthcare in a different way. And we were able to meet people online and we, we, you know, all the things that seemed to be like, oh, that's impossible. We can't do that. All of a sudden had to become possible because we all, we all needed to have some support during that process where we couldn't see anybody in person. And what, what I have seen happen as also is a lot of allopathic medicine. So, so conventional medicine doctors, family doctors in particular are leaving their practice because they've recognized the system is not necessarily really supporting health and their hands are tied. So my personal family doctor has, has closed her practice for this reason. So I would go in with questions, you know, I would like to have this test because I'm investigating this. I would like to do this because of this. And I I'm very proactive and I'm very educated and I, and I very, I, I do everything I possibly can to inform myself before I go in. And she couldn't, she like that test will be denied. You can't have this because you don't have any symptoms. You can't do this. You can't do it. So all, all of the things that really could help from a prevention perspective are not allowed. They need to be reactive. And I'm grateful for our medical providers. I'm grateful for the medical system. When we need pharmaceuticals, when we need surgery, they are, we are so blessed to have them from a management of general health and wellness and prevention. And again, obviously we're talking specifically about pelvic health here. I really don't believe that's our burst, our best first line of defense. Yeah. And obviously power and confidence comes with knowledge. Right. And so I've heard you talk about foods and drinks that can also help us with some of these issues with incontinence or any of these symptoms. Talk a little bit about some of the better foods, what's good for us and what's bad for us. I want to identify the different types of incontinence first, because that will kind of play sure. into what I'll say after. So there's stress urinary incontinence, and this is the one that would, most people would be familiar with. It's the one that pad companies are marketing pads to us for. So it's where little bits of urine leak out with a laugh, a cough, exercising. So something contributes to a rise in intra-abdominal pressure, and we can't manage that. And a little bit of urine leaks out. So we have a pad in and we carry on. So pads, to be clear, are not a cure. They are not a solution. They are a temporary measure, ideally while we are seeking treatment because incontinence is treatable. So that's stress urinary incontinence. Urge incontinence is where people all of a sudden they, you know, they're going about their day and everything's fine. And then all of a sudden there's some sort of trigger that signals the bladder and they all of a sudden feel like they, I have to get to the bathroom right now, urgently. I they're crossing their legs, they're running, they're desperate. And sometimes they don't make it in time. And there's a full release of their bladder could be a little bit leaking out as well. So that's urgency or urge incontinence. You can have a combination of the two. You can also have fecal incontinence or anal incontinence. So that's where gas or stool would leak out without you wanting it to obviously more life altering than urinary incontinence. And now when it comes to food, a lot of time, if people are experiencing leaks throughout the day, 
or, and, or they are feeling like they may not make it to a bathroom in time. If they have to go, they're thinking to themselves, okay, well, I'm just not going to drink. I won't drink anything before I go to my fitness class or before I go grocery shopping or before I do whatever. And therefore there won't be any liquid in there for me to leak out. Sounds logical. However, the bladder is constantly filling. We always have waste that. So even if we don't drink water, there's still waste that would be continuing to fill the bladder. And when we are dehydrated, so when we have avoided drinking, especially water, which hydrates us, the urine that goes into the bladder then becomes much more concentrated, which is much more irritating to the bladder, which the bladder wants to get out more often. So it's going to signal you more strongly and more often. So you're thinking you're fixing your problem, but you're actually exacerbating it or creating a new one. So we want to stay hydrated. And I, I say a bare minimum of two, ideally three liters of pure water every single day. So that will help keep us hydrated. And the other reason is that will also help with stools. So we need to have bowel movements that are easy to pass because if we are straining, if we're dealing with constipation and we are straining and pushing, especially every single day, that is a lot of pressure downwards on the pelvic floor. And that can be a contributor to the development of prolapse, Mm. the development of incontinence or the exacerbation of those. There's also certain food and beverage that are bladder irritants. So things like artificial sweeteners, acidic foods, alcohol, caffeine, uh, dairy, those would be not for everybody, but if you find that you have urges that you feel like you're going to the bathroom all the time, take a look at your diet. So I recommend using something called a bladder diary Mm. and doing it over three to four days and recording the foods and the drink that you have, and then your bathroom response. So how frequently do you go? How strong were your urges? Did you have any leaking? And then you can start to say, Oh, every time I have, you know, in the morning, I have my cup of coffee and I notice much stronger urges and I leak a little, and I have to go much more often. Mm. So then you could make a choice you know, you give up your coffee, half calf, your coffee, decaf coffee, switch to herbal tea. It's in, it's in your control at that point to, to make the decision, but being aware that it can be diet related or hydration related is really, really important because sometimes that can, that can change somebody's life. So last question, what can women do today to improve their vaginas and pelvic floor at home. And obviously you mentioned earlier, come see a a therapist like yourself every year. So I believe in daily pelvic floor um, exercise, however, coordinated into whole body movement. Once somebody understands how to do a Kegel exercise and coordinates that with their breath, we can layer it into our workouts into our, our movement. And that turns a lot of like a bicep curl. If I'm doing my pelvic floor activation while I'm doing my bicep curls, I I'm also targeting my core and my pelvic floor. So that's a very simple way to, to do that. There's, I have a video on my YouTube channel called the core breath, which is kind of the very foundation. I have everybody start there. It's got the different visualizations. It talks about the relationship between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. That's always a number one place for me that I would have people start. 
book in to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. You can Google pelvic floor physical therapy or physiotherapy and your town or your city and, and go see one and it will change your life. It truly will change your life. Uh, so that's my number two. And the other is to, as we, I guess, have the awareness as, as we are approaching menopause. So the average age of menopause is around 51, 51.4 is the official average age. As we are approaching that, recognizing you are probably going to be going through some fluctuations with regards to your menstrual cycle, potentially experiencing some changes within the vagina. You may start to, if you haven't already experienced things like prolapse or incontinence, but speak to your naturopath, your functional medicine provider, or your medical doctor about local vaginal estrogen and also vaginal moisturizer. So these are two things that really, truly can transform, really transform somebody's comfort level with day-to-day activities, with incontinence, with sexual insert of sexual intercourse. Vaginal moisturizer is the best ones to usually have hyaluronic acid in them. This is something that's similar to the serums and the creams that we use on our face. Hyaluronic acid has the capacity to retain moisture and heal dry, irritated tissue. So when inserted into the vagina, it can be a remarkable transformation with regards to that pain and discomfort that can come as the vagina starts to change as a result of less estrogen. It is not hormonal. It is non-estrogenic. However, estrogen is also very beneficial to the tissues within our vagina and around our bladder. Uh, I would argue that I think pretty much every single woman would benefit from being on local vaginal estrogen around, you know, sometime usually in perimenopause, menopause for the remainder of their lives. And there's lots of safety data with regards to estrogen and specifically localized in the vagina. Very, very little of it goes systemically. However, we have a lot of safety data, even with regards to systemic estrogen as well. One book is um, called the estrogen fix. I think that's a really good read. That's very evidence informed for people who are looking to explore that. So pelvic floor exercise, pelvic floor physical therapy once a year, moisturize your vagina and vaginal estrogen. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is terrific. And I hope this helps a lot of women. I appreciate the time. Thank you.